the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover 3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. Come smash that subscribe, smash that like, jump into the chat. This is a mailbag episode. We love our listener and live viewer interaction. We do have questions from the big old bag of mail, but we will also take some from the live audience as well. Uh, We have questions regarding if college football was able to set up matchups, you know, with styles and storylines, much like a fight, a boxing match, or Dana White with UFC. What are some of the matchups that we would want to see? Is there any explanation behind all the success of the basketball schools or so-called basketball schools that has been very well documented and much, much more? But Danny, we begin with uh, some fallout from conference realignment. It's not shakeups from conference realignment, but it is something that's significant in terms of the way that conference realignment has played an impact on uh, the rivalries and the history of college football because Comments recently from athletic directors at both Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, they say that Bedlam is done when the Sooners make the move to the SEC. Now, this would not be unprecedented, especially with the Big 12-related realignment, as we saw Texas and Texas A&M end their rivalry, which, of course, will be renewed once Texas makes it to the SEC. So uh, I ask, how about this? Do you really believe that Bedlam is done, or do you think that we will see another Oklahoma-Oklahoma State game, let's just say in the next 10 to 15 years, because of either further realignment or ADs deciding to uh, get out of their own way and put that game on the schedule? Oh, I think we'll see Bedlam again sometime down the road, but what are we at, 103 years we've seen this rivalry? Like It's one of the longest rivalries in the sport, and it sucks. (laughs) That's the bottom line. That we look at this, this shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, there's been a lot of posturing. Mike Gundy's been warning this was going to happen for several months. Like, yeah, why would we play them anymore? They decided to take the money and go to the big, you know, get the big payday. Well, we're not going to go ahead and schedule them if it's a most likely a loss in Oklahoma State's um, vantage point because they've been pretty much dominant in this rivalry. But I still think that shouldn't matter. This, to me, Chip, goes to why we need, and I know I say it all the time, we need either a commissioner or a group of people who will provide oversight, not only for NIL and transfer portal and all those types of issues, but for scheduling. Like where you come out and you say, these are the teams you're going to play. This is what's best for college football. And yes, you're in the SEC, Oklahoma. You're going to play your normal SEC slate, but we're going to handle your out-of-conference slate. And we're going to make sure that we prioritize this rivalry because it means so much to the game. And like... The SEC just came out with their schedule last night, by the way, which I think was a huge miss. Like that could have been a great topic for us to discuss like in March, right? So I don't know why they did that. But, you know, the the conference comes out and every they tell teams who their cross-divisional rival games are going to be. And some of them we preserve, some of them we don't. 
But somebody's got to step up and do what's best for the sport or else the sport is going to continue to diminish some of the things that makes it so special. Do you think that we would see in a future where um, you know we have some kind of breakaway that we would have that almost I'm, – I'm thinking of NFL-like scheduling where there is some kind of rotation where you have uh, non-conference games that are going to be played. Like when people tried to make the alliance sound attractive – it was with the idea that ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12 teams would be rotating in so that you've got a full schedule already built out. Do you think it could be something like that? Yes, I think that could be something that it would look like where there's a continuity. That's the other thing, too. Like in our you know, system where we have to compare and decide who are the best four teams or 12 teams down the road, how do you do that when there's just no continuity across scheduling across different conferences? So yeah, I could see that absolutely be the the scenario that it takes place. I, I, I think that we'll get Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in an Alamo Bowl. Ew, no, not an Alamo Bowl. That, that'd be Pac-12, Big 12. We'll get it in a Sugar Bowl in the future and New Orleans will be on fire as we get Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Give it to me in a bowl game. Come on, college football playoff selection committee or or whoever needs to rig that thing to be able to show down. I mean, would you, you know why it'll rig- come back? Right. You know why it'll come back? Because both athletic directors are going to look at the alternatives, whether it's Ball State or Central Michigan, you know, whatever team they plug in there in this absence. They're like, oh. Man, we didn't see quite the influx of ticket sales or revenue to our local economy. Maybe it's a better thing that we get this game back that's a little bit more attractive, no matter what the records are, right? People are going to show up to go to a rivalry game. It's just, it's disappointing. And to your point, like we saw, you know, we've seen games come back. We had Oklahoma, Nebraska this past weekend. We had the backyard brawl. So, yeah, it'll come back, but that's what it's probably going to take is, you know, the fans speaking out and speaking with their wallet saying, I'm not going to buy tickets to some crap game. I want to see a rivalry game, and that's probably what it'll take to get the game back. Yeah, the uh, the battle for the Black Diamond Trophy also on Thursday night as West Virginia and Virginia Tech bring back an old rivalry. Not exactly 100 years of that, but uh, 53 meetings, I believe, as they will be on the field in Blacksburg, another side of a home-and-home where the athletic directors decided to uh, move forward, put the date on the schedule, and really generate some excitement around both of the fan bases. Now, this is a time of the year and a time of the week where we're always going to get significant injury news stemming out of uh, the weekend that was and going into a big weekend ahead. Then we'll begin at Auburn, where Auburn quarterback TJ Finley is expected to miss this Saturday's game against Missouri. Uh, it is said to be a shoulder issue. Do you believe that Robbie Ashford is ready to be more than just a specialized package quarterback for the Tigers offense right now? And does the absence of TJ Finley change a, a low bar in terms of expectations for Auburn's offense already? Does uh, the injury to Finley change at all what you think Auburn's going to be able to do against Missouri? No, they're just not very good right now. Um, and as you talk about a must-win game, I think I said for our our exercise we did the other day, I said Georgia Tech is going to be the next opening, like the next soonest opening. I might change that answer now, seeing what's happened. I just think this is a team that's in massive disarray. And I, it, I don't think it was DJ Finley's fault. That's why I don't think Robbie Ashford coming in. What the heck is going on with Zach Calzada, who was brought in there to be handed this offense? Hey, transfer quarterback. He played a, you know, a lot for Texas A&M. Here's the keys. Like, I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. What's happening? I wonder if we see him potentially too. But this does not give me any sort of confidence in Auburn. In fact, it gives me the exact opposite feeling like, man, they are vulnerable. And if there's an opportunity to get rid of Brian Harson, they might take it sooner rather than later as opposed to, I mean, they had uh, Alabama on the ropes last year in the Iron Bowl. Like you don't want to let a coach save his job. So the first sign of, you know, um, you know, uh, adversity, you might go ahead and take that opportunity to move on. I am beginning to believe less and less that it was Zach Calzada's job to lose as much as, um, you know, cause hey, all- sure you can compete and then we're going to make you earn the job. Maybe it just wasn't that good. Well, I, I said, um, I said that the, the three quarterbacks that Auburn had in its quarterback room heading into the season was basically all leftovers and they were hoping to create stir fry. You know, you've got all three transfers. Robbie Ashford comes from Oregon, TJ Finley, even though he played last year, He's from LSU, and now you bring in Zach Calzada, and you're just hoping that between all these ingredients that you're going to be able to figure it out. It is 
it is an incredible confidence borderline on arrogance in terms of your offensive coaching that you're going to be like, I don't know, just we'll, we'll figure this out, toss it together, add in some spice. And this thing will be tasty where the idea of development, the idea of being able to have one person who's really going to grab the reins. It's, it is clearly not working out because the only thing of value within this Auburn offense is handing the ball off to tank Bigsby or Jarquez Hunter. And while that might work against Missouri to be able to get you a win, uh, I think Missouri's got to know that this is an incredibly one-dimensional group with zero threat of the the downfield pass, and that is going to play a big role. If Missouri beats Auburn, do you think we're doing an emergency podcast on Sunday? I'll put it at 50-50, maybe take maybe 60-40 that we are. I mean, they're only a touchdown favorite. This might be a lock. This might be one of the lock spot specials uh, for tomorrow. They're seven, seven and a half. It gets over there. I just think you've got programs. Both of them a little bit in trouble, but you got to feel better about Missouri than you do about Auburn right now. I think you'll get a better effort from them. And this feels like it could be on the verge of shutting things down from a mental, emotional standpoint of a team being like, we know what's coming down the road. Let's, you know, why are we out here putting our bodies on the line? I'll tell you what's coming down the road. It's going to be Missouri beats Auburn. They get on their high horse only to fall to the Vanderbilt Commodores shortly after that as the Doors get their first SEC win of the Clark Lee era. You heard it here first. Uh, One other significant note on the injury issue front, uh, Stanford running back EJ Smith won't go against Washington. And this is very significant considering how strong Smith had been so far this year, his importance to that Stanford offense and the opportunity that uh, really was ahead with Washington now surging now up in the national rankings. Do you give Stanford uh, a chance without their, uh, you know, 200, he's averaging hundred yards per game, three touchdowns so far through two games. Do you think that uh, Stanford's going to be able to pull off an upset without Smith in the lineup? No, and I'm not even worried about the upset. I'm just wondering if they get a cover, uh, you know, with this spot that they're in. I think this is one of those where it does mean so much to the team. I'm curious. I was trying to find it. I was doing my picks with Brady uh, yesterday, and we were talking about the different lines, and I took Stanford in the points, and then I was like, oh, wait, this news dropped right after we were on air, and I was like, oh, man, I wish I could go back and revisit that one, especially the way Washington's been playing. Like, Penix has been looked like he's had a resurgence late. And if you, again, like Stanford's identity, it has always been under David Shaw has been a, a, a when they've been good, has been a good running back, really, you know, workhorse running back, which EJ Smith has been. Now you lose him and you're going to rely more on a backup and uh, Tanner McKee. I don't know. It has me a little bit worried that this might yet again be one of those subpar years by David Shaw Stanford. Uh, um, standard. standard. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the big old bag of mail, we love taking some listener, live listener and live viewer questions as well. This question comes from Mikey. Mikey asks, what time teams? What teams have changed the most from your preseason expectations to your current rankings? So, Danny, who's who Who comes to mind when you start to think about uh, those teams that maybe you were a little bit down on coming into the year and now they have exceeded those expectations? And then obviously on the flip side, someone who uh, you perhaps had much higher hopes for and they have not been realized so far as we are shockingly a quarter of the way uh, through the college football season for a lot of teams. So it's early and we're going to find out a lot about this team as we find out more information every single week about this team traveling to Corvallis. Mm. But I was not expecting USC to be as good as they've looked so far on both sides of the ball. I feel like Bud still pushes back, right? Bud's still like, no, I'm sticking to it. Fade the hype. I'm starting to buy in a little bit more to maybe there is something special uh, out there in LA with the Trojans. We know what the offense was capable of, but now can they take this thing on the road? And I think I've faded them three weeks in a row. I actually did yesterday in our picks as well. And I'm like, I promise I won't do it again. I just couldn't get up because I'm stubborn. But I'm starting to look at USC differently than I did in the preseason. Like maybe this entire roster overhaul is going to come together faster than we think. I was so out on the idea that more responsibility for Spencer Sanders was going to work out. And I understand the level of competition has, has not yet ramped up compared to who the Cowboys still have to face. But Spencer Sanders is balling. 
And what did what what was it the Stetson Bennett Spencer Sanders debate when I said Stetson Bennett and I got nothing but jaws hitting the floor? I love the accountability of the Cover Three podcast because the, y'all's reaction, like my the reaction of my friends, had me going back after the episode as soon as we were done. Uh, I'm doing all the you know the post show work and I'm like I. I might need to rethink that take. These things are sometimes cooked <laughs> up in real time. And Spencer Sanders has been playing incredibly well. Oklahoma State uh, has been rolling so far. And again, the we are going to see this Oklahoma State team get tested more once we are not dealing with an Arizona State team that may or may not have had uh, leaking information from inside, like a wakey leaks type situation as uh, some of those other people around the program wanted to see a coaching change. Obviously, Baylor coming up. They're off this week. They've got Baylor coming up on October 1st, Texas coming up on October 22nd, Texas Tech and TCU in between. But I thought this was a team that might be 7-5, and 8-4. and four. I, I think Mike Gundy's got himself a team that's going to flirt with 10 wins once again. So I was out, but I, I, I can't be as much of a Spencer Sanders hater so far based on what I've seen. I'm with you on that. The other team I was thinking about was Penn State. They were a trendy pick to be like, hey, watch out for Penn State. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm buying into that just yet. All of a sudden, you see Singleton arise as a workhorse back. Defense looks better. They dominate Auburn. And Sean Clifford, is there a tougher quarterback in the country than he is after taking that shellacking that he did in the game, coming back, quarterback sneak, next play, next drive, gets a run in, you know, rushes a touchdown? And the leadership of a – he's a six-year, right? I mean, it's definitely yep. a fifth-year. Yeah, he's a six-year mm-hmm. senior. The leadership he's provided, the game-winning drive against Purdue. Now, it wasn't exactly pretty against Purdue, but I feel like that was one of those kind of put your stamp on the season. There's no looking over my shoulder now. I, I'm. Are you – you said it the other day. Didn't you Penn State's going to derail either Ohio State or Michigan? I think Penn State's the third-best team in the Big Ten. I, I didn't go all the way. you think they beat one of those? I think they could. I think it is more yeah. likely they beat I'm not Ohio State. I guarantee it. No, 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 no. Definitely yeah. not. Um, the Because it's a Michigan on the road where Penn State has historically not been able to go and beat Michigan in the big house. They can get them in Happy Valley. But it is Ohio State in Happy Valley where they have historically been very competitive where they've got you know the, the big win in 2016, but then also a bunch of close losses to very good Ohio State teams elsewhere. The thing that has stood out to me is – Reviewing Sean Clifford's career is nothing but turnover at offensive coordinator. And now he's got Mike Yursich for two years in a row. And so you combine the experience of being that sixth-year player with actually having some continuity within the system. I think he's got a mastery of that thing where he's able to uh, check in and out of play. And now, look, I'm, you, you know I am not Mr. All-22 Film Study. I am not Mr. X's and O's. I've done myself a lot of favors by not trying to fake it and being able to lean on the experts. So Cole Kublik was pointing this out in his film study analysis, and he shared that he was watching Sean Clifford call out the protections and, mm-hmm. and do all of that line of scrimmage stuff. And I was like, wow. And he didn't point out that Mike Yersis, that's where I get to my, add my piece and take it to the next level. But that's why I was like, oh, of course he's able to do that in a way that he hasn't before. He's as healthy as he's ever been throughout his career. And he's finally got the mastery of an offense and some continuity at offensive coordinator. It should not be a surprise that we are seeing Sean Clifford be able to uh, elevate these things when everything around him is getting better, when the coaching has now got some continuity and he's got all these experiences. So shame on me for thinking that he was going to have a poor performance at Auburn because you're right. He is, he has exceeded uh, a lot of people's expectations and that's even coming from someone who is high on Penn state going into the year. Can we just note something? Jordan, our producer, he's, he's begging for us to say Tennessee, you know, he, he desperately wants us to say the Vols. They're exactly what I thought they were going to be so far, right? I think we were all pretty bullish on them. Like, they were a trendy pick, too, and they've been exactly what we thought. I like them against Florida this weekend. By the way, Florida's probably not as good as I thought. You know, coming in, listening to Billy Napier talk about Anthony Richardson, a little bit disappointing start and questionable whether there might be a quarterback issue developing in Gainesville. But the Vols are exactly what I thought they were going to be. Yeah, quarterback depth ain't great right now. For Florida. Oh, he's right? calling you out. He's calling. You saw the chat. He's saying you took the Vols under. Which I, did. I don't. They haven't cashed that ticket yet, have they? Um, have no. they? Okay, no. that's right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're sitting here in week four. We got a lot of work to do. Look, it, that spread is preposterous. Ooh. Ten and a half points 
when you've lost 16 of 17 in the series mm. and bad Florida teams have still found ways to be able to go and get those dubs. I don't think it would be 16 of 17 if that game was played in like November, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. like I can count on Florida to check out. Like that's when you throw a shoe. Like that's when you lose to like some uh, FCS team yeah. later in the year. That's that's yes. when a coach has been able to you know, either get fired or, you know, obviously like check out on the season. But yeah, early in the year is, is when you normally get some some good pride, prideful punches uh, from the Gators. I, I think ten and I think Tennessee's going to win the game. I think ten and a half is preposterous. And uh and and we'll see if that ends up showing up on the locks episode on Thursday. A <laughs> lot, of, lot of teases for the locks episode tomorrow. Can't wait. Um let's go ahead and jump into uh one question from the big old bag of mail before we hit the break. This question comes from Nathan. If college football had a promoter that set up matchups based on style like Dana White for UFC, what would be the best matchup and why is it UNC versus Iowa? Besides <laughs> that, what would y'all pick? Oh, that's a good one. Um, There's one just, and we've joked about this. Can we make this happen in the playoffs? But is there a better one? Than Oklahoma USC right now with no. all that's transpired with the like I don't know if Lincoln Riley would embrace the role of heel but man could he ever I mean if he just tweeted pictures of his backyard that you know the Pacific Ocean back there and said what people were tweeting after he left but my goodness that would have to be like the main event of any of the ones that I think we could suggest right I mean especially now now maybe historically we could find some better ones. But this season, I don't know if you could find a better matchup than Oklahoma versus USC. And that's the perfect combination of style and narrative because even this season, getting Oklahoma with Dylan Gabriel, with the Jeff Lebby offense, going up against Caleb Williams and the USC offense, we would be going with an absolute shootout. That over-under is 79.5 going into the game and might flirt with 80. You might catch it live at 89 and a half at some point after both teams' 15 plays uh, create a couple of touchdowns. Throw in the Lincoln Riley aspect and all the narratives. Like, that's the perfect combination of style against narrative. Now, for style purposes, I think that it's actually in a, a matchup that's going down right now. It's a, it's a matchup that's going down this weekend where Iowa and Rutgers. <laughs> <laughs> currently have an over-under win total of 34 and a half. And that's too daggum high. <laughs> that, listen, Rutgers versus Iowa is the opposite of what USC and Oklahoma would be in terms of style. I, I would also want to see from the narrative aspect, uh, Oregon against Miami. You know, I would also want to see from uh, the narrative aspect our opportunity to see uh, a former quarterback go up against his former team with that revenge angle. And for that one, I had written down actually Spencer Rattler going up against Oklahoma as Mm. we could get South Carolina and Oklahoma somewhere in there. And then in terms of just rock fighty type, this is in our bag right here, rock fighty ACC teams that are good, but I'm not sure how elite they or how great they are. Give me Pitt and NC State. In a, in an ACC championship game, that thing kind of like that. That thing has field goals, punting from plus territory. I mean, that thing is decided at the line <laughs> of scrimmage without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. For the you know, in the same category of Oklahoma USC, I think you have to consider LSU Notre Dame. You know the way that Brian Kelly left Notre Dame. Um, I got one for you, and I know Florida State fans would love to see Florida State Texas A and M. Oh, Jimbo, man. you know, that guy could be a little dicey. That way, you know, he he wouldn't be afraid to say some things. I think there's a mixed bag with Florida State fans. I think they obviously appreciate the success he built, but didn't like him flirting, leaving all the time, and then eventually doing so to go to College Station. That would be a good one. Your quarterback's going back is really a good one because that's a theme we could look all over the country and look at, you know, quarterback to transfer portal. Just look how many players have left. And there's always that aspect of like when I was on the Giants, I got cut and then I was on the Falcons the next year. 
And I was teammates with Michael Strahan and Jesse Armstead. Like these guys were good defenders. And in practice, you know, you could jaw, you could talk trash to them because they're on the, you know, they're on your team and they'd laugh. But then they'd be like, man, I wish I could kill you, but you're wearing a protected jersey. And I'll never forget playing in that game. Every time after they hurt, they hit me, they were like, no more red jersey, not protected today, are you? Not protected today. I can only imagine how much smack talk would take place between all these guys if they were playing against their former, you know, teammates on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, that would we get catch like a a Bo Nix against Auburn kind of showdown. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that would that that would get uh that would get incredibly incredibly exciting. What about what about what, what this this might have been better like in the first two years of Har Harbaugh's regime at Michigan, but Bama versus Michigan. Remember when Harbaugh was coming in and he had his shirt off and he was going to all the satellite camps and was getting a little bit chippy. I think that one would be a fun one too. Just, you know, a couple blue bloods that you could see just, I could, I could see. And Harbaugh's dialed it back a little bit on the smack talk front, but he doesn't hesitated to take some shots at Ryan day. Still. I think, I think it'd be interesting to see what he would have to say in that leading up to that matchup. I think he'd have some thoughts. I, I cannot tell you how good for business an Alabama-Michigan playoff semifinal would be like dibs dibs on the live blog now. Like we'll do, we'll do four episodes breaking it down. There is not a limit on the amount of excitement that would go into uh, an Alabama-Michigan college football playoff semifinal. Um, let me see. I think that there is a comment right now in the chat. They played. In 2020, that's that right. Been, in the Outback Bowl, I think, wasn't it? Let's see. It was in the Orlando. one year that oh, so it's the end of the 2019 season. This is when LSU wins the SEC West and goes on to win the national championship. Alabama ends up not even in the New Year Six. They are in the Outback Bowl against Michigan. That is an Alabama 35, Michigan 16. And if I remember, that was Alabama's second and third stringers. Yeah. Pretty much like that. We were dealing with a uh, very much an opt out type squad there from the Crimson Tide. So a uh, good note there. Uh, I appreciate that Gavin in the chat coming through strong. Coming up on the other side, is there any actual explanation to why these basketball schools are all off to great starts? We'll dive into that and more next. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here's another good one live uh, from the chat. This question comes from Logan. Uh, did Nick Saban handicap himself by not moving on from Bill O'Brien after last year when he was unhappy with Dayball? He got him a job, but nobody came for B.O.B. I like this part of it. Would Dan Mullen as OC have produced a better offense? Mm. I'm starting to see more of that line of questioning for Alabama in the last couple weeks than ever before and starting to ramp up a little bit, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think there's some truth there. I, I think it's one of those things where we've seen what happens. Like this is getting the keys to the Ferrari, the Bentley, whatever car you want to get. It does feel like there's been a little bit of a governor on it or, you know, some mishaps. Ferraris are in the shop a lot. Just a little bit of hiccups there that I do think you could put on Bill O'Brien. And if you watch what Brian Dable's been doing, both in the NFL as an assistant and now as a head coach, and you look at some of the schemes and creativity and getting guys balls and in, in finding those mismatches, you start thinking, man, like 
maybe, maybe there was something more to that aspect of it. And the play calling minds that have really been an, an innovative that have been to Tuscaloosa. And it does feel a little bit like a step back. Now, I don't think that means you can't win still with Bill O'Brien because of the talent that could overcome it. But I do think it's a worth asking the question, are you maximizing all of that talent that you have on the field? I mean, there's no way that our like video game brains is going to be able to find a product on the field that is going to match what we think is going to happen based on the talent. The The explanation is going to end up coming down to coaching where we start to say that these wide receivers, these running backs, these offensive linemen, they were blue chip players. Why does it seem so hard for this Alabama offense to get going? It's if Bryce Young's not on that offense, like in, in the Heisman Trophy conversation, I feel like there's three players that are sort of right at the top of it where you go uh, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young, Caleb Williams. And CJ Stroud is your numbers guy, your system guy. He's going to break all of the records. He's going to throw four touchdowns a game. Uh, Caleb Williams is kind of your MVP face of the resurgence. And I feel like Bryce Young, even as the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, I feel like his Heisman Trophy argument is if you take Bryce Young off of Alabama, that is not a national championship contender. But with him on Alabama, he is the reason why you have to still take the Crimson Tide seriously. They lose in Texas if he's yes. not there. And not yes. only because of the one play where he dodged the defense, you know, the uh the corner blitz, but the scramble and the toss to Jameer Gibbs. Like, there were several examples of why they won the game because of him. They don't win the Iron Bowl last year without Bryce Young in that drive that he put together uh, to come back from that game. So I think clearly you see the value in having a quarterback who off script is able to bail you out of a lot of plays. That's why coordinators like mobile quarterbacks who can improvise because it bails you out of bad plays. And unfortunately for Bama fans, you're starting to see that happen, have, having to happen more times than not. By the way, I want to make sure we're not a Stetson Bennett hater podcast. Did you realize you left out a quarterback there because you gave some of the guys in that upper class. Yep. Stetson Bennett is one of three players in the country with zero interceptions, completion percentage of 70% or more, and at least six total touchdowns. It's him, CJ Stroud, and Caleb Williams. So he's up there with the elite company that you just mentioned as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Brock Bowers truther. I think that there's I, I think there's a, a more outstanding player on that offense, you know. I mean, it's, he was the MVP last year of the offense without question. I he, he might have been, I don't know who they gave the award to as a team, but I want to say it might have been Bowers last year. He's I, insane. Yeah, that's I I think this unguardable uh passing weapon is going to is going to continue to just tear up defenses. And because Georgia had so much success against Oregon. He like didn't even start cooking, but then we saw it against South Carolina. It's like that that is that is a real problem for everyone else. No, I'm I'm not a Stetson Bennett hater. I will say I was. I still think that's the top three. I still I still think that's, that's the top three. If I mean that's we're fair. just talk, we're talking about this in September. Come on, it's yeah. super early. All right, this one comes from Caleb. And a reminder, if you leave us a five-star review and put your mailbag question in that review, uh, then we will tackle it in a future mailbag episode. Caleb asks, um, long-suffering Kansas fan here. I grew up in Kansas during the Mark Mangino era and have stuck it out through all the coaching changes and one-win seasons. I appreciate Tom's belief in this team and our coaching staff. My question has to do a little bit with more than just Kansas. It seems as though these traditional basketball powers, Kansas, North Carolina, Duke, Syracuse, and Wake have started to invest in their football programs. Do you think this is a coincidence or do you think in the era of NIL and conference realignment, the schools know the way to survive is to make a concerted effort to make its football programs respectable? Am I overreacting to this undefeated start? So the theory, the premise is that the basketball schools have started to invest more on the football side. Correct. That NI that the combination of conference realignment, NIL, the shifting understanding. I mean, in the nineteen in nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight, a media rights deal for the ACC paid out eighty percent was basketball, twenty percent was football, and now my understanding is that is one hundred percent flipped, where a media rights payout is going to be eighty percent football, twenty percent everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and in other conferences, it might even be more lopsided. 
So that's this idea that these traditional basketball powers uh, have have decided to put more into their football programs, trying to make sure it's more than just something fun to do on a Saturday till basketball season starts. That's the premise. Uh, and you know what else has probably um, been noticed by these programs is that as great as the basketball money is, the football money is even better, yeah. right? And, and not only that, but from ticket sales, interest in the program, and I don't think I think they're also realizing it doesn't have to take away from the basketball program. And I thought it was really interesting. We're starting to see a tug of war. I mean, we saw it with Mark Stoops and John Calipari just not that long ago. Remember when he called it a basketball school and you found out like it was over money you know, allocated to different programs. And I think you're seeing some of that struggle. But as far as these teams, like how do you explain this? I think you've got two of the programs which absolutely smashed their hires and Mike Elko at Duke and Lance Eipold. Now it's early at Duke, right? Let's see how it uh, it sustains over time. And they've had, I mean, Cutcliffe was a great coach. Turn it around, that just kind of gets hard to win there. Um, but they've clearly hit it out of the park with Elko. And then I talked to Lance Leipold this morning and on the radio show. It's, you, you, did, you just notice, you're like, oh, it makes a lot more sense now, like why he was able to do what he's done so quickly there at Kansas. And I actually covered him back I covered the Stag Bowl when I was at ESPN, one of his Wisconsin White uh, Wisconsin Whitewater championships at the D3 level. And I remember talking to him in a meeting, and you're always like, you're like, oh, yeah, he's a nice, like, impressive guy, but oh, he's never going to get a shot. Like, these D3 coaches, they're not going to get an opportunity. He's, he's climbed his way right up the hard way. And when you do that, like, when you learn how to win at the D3 level with the restrictions and, you know, the lack of scholarships, the lack of talent, then you truly become a coach who knows how to teach fundamentals, who knows how to teach discipline, who knows how to motivate. Then you do it at Buffalo, which is even harder, like even less, you know, compared to the other teams you're playing against. That's why it was the perfect hire there. But I think also, I think Stoops is an example at Kentucky of the SEC money, which has come in there and kind of leveled the playing field. I mean, I remember back at ESPN going to cover a Kentucky game when they weren't very good, and it was like, wait, they're they're starting to put some money in this, and that's a direct result of the SEC network and some of the money that was coming in there, so that at least they have a fighting chance to get back on par. And then once they get some at least decent players, then you get a coach like Mark Stoops is able to come in and maximize it again. So probably, I think it's more about the coaches they've hired than it is about any philosophical changes they've got. They've hired really well, and you're also scheduling like a, I mean, it, you are not signing up to play Alabama for mm -hmm. Mike Elka's first year. You know, you, you are not putting together uh, a schedule that is going to include the going up against Michigan in the non-conference play. We're having this conversation after three weeks of college football. And so far wake has gone up against VMI Vandy and uh, one other one other game, North Carolina's played uh, Georgia State, App State, and Florida A&M. You know, Duke has played Temple at Northwestern. I, I see, you know, I, I see you Blue Devils. Yeah, Kansas obviously has to win against West Virginia. Kansas Kansas is the most impressive of these. And Kentucky, Kentucky is already, because of the 8, 9, 10 win seasons in the recent history, I don't necessarily look at that one grouped in. And Syracuse... Well, the PI offense sure got them that win against Purdue to keep them undefeated. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they'll be able to maintain on Friday night uh, against Virginia. They are 10-point favorites. I think they will win the game, but um, that's that, we'll, we'll see. Is Syracuse good? You know, shout out to the Sickos committee. That, that is one of the great debates in our country right now. You know, there's a lot of raging debates in this country, but is Syracuse good? They're... they're Oh, Liberty also. That was the other game again for Wake Forest, and that was a close call. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for, yeah, yeah. We're dealing with some thin margins for these. Uh, you know, North Carolina gave up a 40 point fourth quarter to App State, uh, two point conversion try away from Wake Liberty going south. You know, the Purdue game was pretty tight. I, I understand the question, and ultimately, I think that Danny's got it right. It has to do with the coaches that you hired and making sure that you've got a coach who is comfortable playing that role at a basketball school, but then also able to go out and motivate, go, be able to get the resources involved. All right, let's see. This next question comes from Jay. 
Hey guys, with the Nebraska job now open, it has got me thinking. Why are there not more consideration for top assistants for jobs of this caliber? There are plenty of examples of programs that are better jobs, no disrespect to Nebraska, going the assistant route. Ryan Day took over Ohio State after just two years on the job as offensive coordinator with no prior head coaching experience or Big Ten regional ties. They could have gone out and gotten the best, quote, up-and-coming group of five coach or a mid-tier power five coach in the country at that time. Lincoln Riley took over a storied program at Oklahoma at 34 years old, and at the time, it was a big question if he could handle the job of that magnitude. Other head coaches that had no prior experience running a program elsewhere are Kirby Smart, Marcus Freeman, David Shaw, Brent Venables, Dave Aranda, Tony Elliott, Dabo Sweeney, Sam Pittman, Dan Lanning, and Jimbo Fisher when he was at Florida State. Cristobal wasn't successful at FIU, but he was an internal hire at a big-time school like Oregon when Taggart left. My point is... I think fans, media, athletic departments, and boosters are shortening their list of candidates for the program by getting fixated on the up-and-coming coaches that are head coaches at the Group of Five or Power Five level. I think guys like Jeff Lebby, Jeff Grimes, Jim Leonard, Josh Gaddis, and Pete Golding ought to be on the candidate list for Nebraska or other future openings of jobs of that caliber or better. You can make the case for either one. Like you could pound your table, uh, you could pound your fist on the table and say you have to hire a coach with experience. And you could go with the list of like a Nick Saban, who's the greatest coach of our generation, who had a lot of experience both in the college game and the NFL when he was hired by Alabama. You go with Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, who's done a great job there, had head coaching experience, NFL and college. You could make the case for, oh, you need both. Like you need NFL and college coaching experience. You could say you have to be a head coach. And as he laid out, you could lay out the example of assistant coaches who have been, you know, waiting for their opportunity. Bottom line is you just, whether it's the athletic director, whether it's a consulting firm, which we should do the cover three consulting firm, coaching, you know, search firm, because I think we could do as good a job as they could. You just got to find the best fit for you. And who cares if they were a head coach, if they were a coordinator, if they played at your university, you just have to make the best hire that's available. You know, and it's it's it sounds like a cop out to answer it that way. But why would you pigeonhole yourself and say, "Oh, well, we we want somebody who's we want to find the hot coordinator." You just don't know who's going to be available. Maybe it's somebody. I mean, Mac Brown has worked out pretty well for North Carolina, and he was you know somebody that was an afterthought and that was trying to get back in, and you know just desperate to get back. He goes to Carolina. You will see it, still see if it turns out the results they want. But it's been I think better than a lot of people thought. There just there is no recipe or else we would see all those home run hires that we give A's. We wouldn't see them fired in three years half the time if there was a formula. It's kind of like finding quarterbacks as first rounders in the NFL or five-star quarterbacks. There is no exact science. You just kind of like do your due diligence, see if you can find somebody who fits, and then you back them and support them and say, go get them. That's really all you can do. Yeah, and Nebraska also might be in the position right now where based on the way it went with Scott Frost, they might say, no, we would like a track record of you being able to run a program because the last coach we hired had only two years of being a head coach. And it seemed like a lot of the details and a lot of the, you know, people aspect and the management aspect of this job was where some of that thing came undone. So I, I understand that a hundred percent. You know what I hope happens? I mean, we're, we love Bye. Dino Babers, the Dino drop, hopefully we can get that worked in sometime soon is like, and Jamie put this in the chat. You know, landing the best fit uh, coach that fits is tough, and you have to give a coach time. Syracuse given Babers seven years. Like, I hope they continue to play well and they're able to fight this around because there were some people who thought maybe should be fired, you know, after a couple rough seasons. You do have to give it to coach time to breathe. But then, you know, you've seen programs wait around too long, too. So there just there is no exact formula for what to do with a head coach. The um, did you see uh, sidebar here? Uh, did you see that the ACC picked up a consulting firm to tell them to move that conference <laughs> office an hour and a half down the road? I don't even want to know what they paid them either because that'll I bother know. me, especially when their purse strings, to be, purse strings to be very tight with the TV contract that they have with ESPN. Like, seriously, you needed somebody to consult on that move? I did not see that, and that bothers me right now as we're getting like my blood is starting to boil. Global commercial real estate services firm Newmark 
acting as an independent consultant and broker, assisted in leading the objective data-driven comparison and evaluation. Mm. You know, I have my real estate license. I could have brokered that deal. Oh, yeah, was- <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I got it like 15 years ago. And it's like, what am I going to do with my life? Oh, I'll get my real estate license. You know, I hung it in an office for a couple of years. Didn't close any sales. So that could be a problem. But I feel like I could have done a good job letting them know that Charlotte was the better option. They, See- they would have done it years ago if the SEC would have let them move and shared the same studios that they have uh, in Charlotte. And that was really? a big point of contention. Absolutely, the S. The, I've been, you know, I used to work out of those studios when I did ESPNU because that's oh the original studios were ESPNU. Then they launched the SEC Network out of those Charlotte studios, and there was space to you know there's studios there that they were going to have the ACC Network, which made a ton of sense. They, I don't know if they still do it, but they would do ACC basketball media days out of there. And the SEC was like, no, 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 we're not sharing with you guys. We're the SEC. We don't share with anybody. And so then they moved a lot of production up to Bristol for the TV side, the ACC network. And now you've got the conference moving there. I'll be curious to see if they move, if they consider moving the ACC network studios and production teams back to Charlotte. But it's been a little bit of a mess. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you'd like to go to a city with a bigger airport to accommodate (laughs) all the new members that you've got up north. Got it. It's right there. Uh, all right, one last question before we get out of here. This one comes from Elia. Elia says, hey, guys, love the pod, but Notre Dame has been breaking my heart. I'm wondering if Notre Dame this year can be what Clemson was last year, an elite defense with a below-average offense. If Notre Dame finishes the year on a six-game winning streak with 10 wins with a bowl game victory as well, <laughs> I think that is a Marcus Freeman coach of the year campaign. I don't think they can do that. I don't either. And it is pretty remarkable when you look back at how bad the quarterback play was at Clemson last year that they were able to do all that they did. And even some of their law, I mean, the NC State game was in overtime. Like they, It wasn't like it was just fell apart. They still were close to being what they always were, which is a playoff contender. I'm with you. I'm more worried about Notre Dame, their season kind of having one of those setback years where, you know, the question, the critics start coming in. Bud's mentioned this a bunch, like the recruiting class. Do you start to see cracks in that, which has been awesome? I think it'll probably fall somewhere right in the middle of, you know, are they last year's Clemson or are they six and six or five and seven? But the schedule is brutal. And in today's game, you got to have otherworldly defensive talent up front. And I don't know if, D- if Notre Dame has that right now. Yeah, I I don't think that the defense as a whole is as elite as um, Clemson's was last year. And I think that the best hope that Notre Dame has is that they are going to be able to find, with Drew Pine, a little bit of a rhythm. The good news is North Carolina's defense is right there waiting for you this weekend. Maybe they can build a little bit of confidence. Maybe they can find a little bit of a... A little bit of a rhythm right there. I know that offensive coordinator Tommy Reese is working on that, but you mentioned it. It's North Carolina, BYU, Stanford, UNLV, Syracuse, Clemson, Navy, BC, and USC. I count one, two, three likely losses with two or three more, and you've already got two losses on the schedule. Five and seven is possible. I think that's probably the floor. I think a, a getting getting out of here with nine and three headed in, into the bowl game is uh is it does not seem likely for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. So, best of luck, but no no I'm I'm sorry Elia. I don't think that we're going to see uh we're going to see this team be able to navigate with just an elite defense and a below average offense. Maybe some of that's cuz of the independent schedule. Like maybe right. Clemson got some gimmies, right? Cuz they yeah. were able to just run through the ACC and just lean on uh being excellent defensively. So, uh, do you have any you have any Notre Dame North Carolina thoughts? Um, I would, the thing I was thinking about was Tommy Reese. Remember, you got caught uh, this you know on camera when you read the lips, and he's chewing out uh, Drew, Drew Pine, poor Drew Pine in that situation. I didn't love it. I as a quarterback, I'd always prefer you coach me, don't yell at me, and that was that was a good old fashioned like just butt chewing that he was giving him. You know, do your job. You're letting the whole team down. 
But I don't know if you saw this. Tommy Reese's comments after the fact, he said, hey, I'm going to coach different people different ways. Um, and I thought that was a really – like, and he said, hey, Drew Pine could handle it. And clearly he did in that situation, and, and Tommy Reese played the position. Um, but as far as the North Carolina game, I kind of like North Carolina. You know my feelings on Drake May. Like, I have a man crush on Drake May. I I like the heels in this situation. And if you can – like, how many points do you need? against that offense, which has been struggling. Like, I think that's going to be, you know, is it 24? You got to feel pretty good. Did you talk about, oh, listen, at North Carolina, if it gets to 28, that's probably a win. Probably. Yeah. Not saying yeah. definitely. And I know their defense has been bad, but the offenses they've gone against have had more firepower and better quarterback play. So did Brady say anything about uh, the butt chewing? He didn't. We didn't get into that yesterday, but I would I would assume he would say the same thing, especially after hearing that like Reese's explanation was, you know, hey, I I knew he could handle it, and if right. you know he has a relationship, he sees him every day in practice, and like if it was he airmailed he airmailed a pass, you know, like and it was something that was kind of talent related, but it felt more like hey, you're sleepwalking through this game. Like, we need you to wake up and make better decisions. I don't know if he missed a protection call or he missed a hot route, or but it felt more like that. It was a mental error than it was a physical error because, I, again, I never was a fan of coaches screaming at me if I missed a throw. Like, hey, you don't think I'm trying? Like, what are we doing here? But there were times maybe, you know, for whatever reason, maybe, if you if you didn't study and it's game day, it's like you're kind of screwed. If you're getting chewed out, then like you should probably just be benched. So I don't think that was the case. But you know how many times we talk about sleepy Saturday, like and it's Cal and nobody's really fired up, and you might be feeling sorry for yourself. Like that's when you kind of need a little bit of a wake up call. And if a coach has to chew you out, sometimes that's what has to happen. One and two Notre Dame, three and zero North Carolina. That is a three thirty kickoff. We'll see if it gets tackled. In the locks episode for week four, that'll be coming up on Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure you subscribe, smash the bell for notifications so that you know when we go live. And you can follow him on Twitter at Danny Cannell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Danny, thank you very much. You got it. Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.